Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Today we are talking to Samantha Rosenvale, a digital anthropologist who studies the way technologies impact our everyday lives and experiences. Today we will be talking about her work as a digital anthropologist as well as her experience in applying anthropology to the business world. Hi Samantha, welcome to The Human Show. It's really lovely to finally meet you first question is one that we've so far asked every guest that's come on to here and I think that's because we've found that every guest has their own unique way of um, explaining it and that is how would you define anthropology? Oh yeah, I'm not surprised that everyone has a different answer for that at all. So I would define anthropology as fundamentally both human and material. So it's the study of how people and things create kind of interconnected co-constitutive networks that create potentials and opportunities for people to interact in different ways and come to understand themselves and build their senses of self in different ways. I did some research onto you before the show. I'm actually quite interested into what exactly a user experience researcher is and like how did you find your way in that path? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with how I got there and, and what I discovered when I did get there. Uh, I studied my undergraduate degree at the School of Oriental and African Studies here in London. And I studied social anthropology, specialized in South Asian anthropology, because I was all about career prospects. And uh, I, I went into the working world after my undergrad degree, and I got a job, an internship with a tech startup. And I was working as a community management intern, which is a whole other thing that we won't even try to define right now. But there was a user experience designer at this company who, when he found out I had studied anthropology, was like, oh, uh, you're qualified to do our user experience research. And I was like, well, that's surprising because I have absolutely no idea what user research is. How could I possibly be qualified to do that? So I essentially just did a lot of, you know, surprise, surprise research into what that was. And it turns out that it is it's a part of, you know, user experience principles that uses a lot of the same research methodologies and guiding principles that anthropological research methods use. So it's inherently qualitative and it's a lot of asking non-leading questions, conducting interviews, ethnographic studies are a really big part of user experience research. So I kind of did a, I did a lot of work to sort of teach myself how to do that, did that for about six months and then decided to go back and do my master's in digital anthropology. And then that's sort of the career that I went to after that I was trying to sort of hone those skills academically so that I could pursue that as a career. So what I've been doing for the last few years is working for tech companies mostly on really early stage products. So what I do is I I try to gather what the user's needs are so they'll have an idea of the person who's the desired end user of this digital product. So I'll conduct a lot of really in-depth qualitative often very anthropological research with those people to try to understand what are the constraints that affect their daily lives? What are the sort of institutions that they're guided by? What are the various sort of goals and needs that they're trying to fulfill on a daily basis? And what are the things that are just sort of 
unmovable, unchangeable things in their lives that this product has to be able to work around that we're not going to be able to shift or change. And then at a sort of later stage, it gets into more design focused research where you're sort of testing the intuitiveness of designs and flows kind of trying to mimic existing behavior and workflows in the way a product is designed and making sure that you kind of optimize for that. You study digital anthropology. What technologies or area do you focus on? In my master's degree, I focused a lot on wearable technology, specifically wearable tech that had been created to be a part of the sort of mindfulness movement as it is in the very mainstream. That was really fascinating because it was all about creating balance with use of digital devices by sort of inserting another layer of technology to give you space from your technology. So it was this really kind of interesting tension where you were sort of using a necessary evil to fill these what were being sort of branded as inherent human needs. That was a really interesting area of investigation because, you know, there was a lot of what actually is an an inherent human need and, and all that kind of stuff. Sam, I just wanted to ask you about your opinion about this discourse of technology being evil. This is another question that we like to ask all of our speakers, just to kind of try to understand it in a, in a deeper way than just, is it evil and why? Mm-hmm. What do you think? First of all, let me say technology is not evil. Technology not good but it's not evil. It's it's a tool. It's a vehicle. If you want to get really sort of Latorian about it, it's a part of sort of like the actor network that affects our lives, right? And everything that we can do, and therefore all the ways that we can potentially be and become human beings. So without getting too relativistic, throughout history, different types of technology have affected the way that we can be human beings, the way that we can interact with each other. If you think about the telegram, for example, for all of human history, it had taken a very long time for a simple message from one person very far away to get that message to another person. They would have to send a letter that would have to go on a boat and then think about the Pony Express in America before the Transcontinental Railroad. It was like painful and so slow. And then if you look at that as this really, really, really long, laborious process, and then you think about the telegram, it took all of that and just folded it in half and made it instantaneous. That's crazy. Like, that's insane. That's such a huge leap in human technology, right? And that totally affected society. So yeah, of course, all of this stuff has happened before. Changes have happened. People have been totally freaked out by all of these changes. I think it was Socrates who said that the written word was going to make people dumber because they would be able to kind of externalize all of their knowledge and thoughts, which is exactly what people say about digital technology. But, and this is a big but, the way the technology is progressing today is completely and totally different than it has in the past. It's at a different velocity. It's increasingly more of a black box that less and less people understand. We find it increasingly more difficult to predict what the actual progress and nature of that technology is going to be even in the super near future, right? We don't know what technology is going to look like in two years time, let alone 20 years. So do I think technology is evil? No, I think people tend to put a lot of onus on the devices themselves because the scary fact about it is that the technology is only capable of doing what its human creators inscribe within it. And people have a tendency to do pretty terrible things with technology. 
realistically, the only way that we can deal with the fact that evil things can be done, whether that's, you know, addictive social media apps or weapons of mass destruct everything in between, is we just have to, as a society, hold the people who are responsible for creating this technology accountable for their creations and make sure that there is sort of a, a baseline of ethics that they are expected to meet whether that be design ethics or, you know, there should be, there should totally be an independent board that's in charge of, of kind of like watching artificial intelligence engineers and machine learning engineers, because most of us have absolutely no idea what they're doing and the data they're using to train them and all of the ways in which those, those things are biased. Like we have no idea. They shouldn't be allowed to just roam free and do whatever they want to, because these things are going to structure our lives in pretty much every single way. That's like so interesting because like on the show we do like try to talk a lot about the ethics and the moral implications of like these businesses that create and sustain such technologies. And so like for you, you obviously work with businesses and doing anthropology. In your work, what type of issues have you run into trying to balance, you know, the anthropology and then working for this business? Yeah, so I think anthropology has a lot that a lot to give to these kinds of businesses. But my experience has been, especially with the most recent company I've been working for, is that it can be difficult to get this type of research to reach its full potential within that kind of organization, mostly just because things move so quickly. So you end up kind of having to adapt methodologies to an extent that borders on being slightly, you know, you're like, oh, I don't really know if I feel comfortable with this. But it's just things move so quickly and things have to iterate that you don't you don't really have a choice yeah i mean it, it's definitely one thing that I, I see is like a very positive change is the mindset of the technology industry has really really fundamentally changed um putting a, a lot of emphasis on human-centered design and starting to understand the different ways they can make that human-centered I think it's a little too early to tell whether that'll actually reach its potential as it takes a lot of investing in certain types of people and certain types of skills and stuff like that. Uh, I think that the right intentions are there, but it's it's a little too early to tell whether there will be the right kind of follow through and whether that will have the sorts of effects that we might hope that it would in terms of how things are developed and designed. You're, you're raising some points that are so, how do you say, common to anthropologists working in the business sector and time is a, is a, is a critical one of them. And and I think the second one that I've also seen is asking powerful questions. You know, when you are in a business meeting with the engineers and the project manager, and how can you guide the asking of powerful questions? And also the conversation around the room starting to become more profound, more intense, and less binary. So with that in mind, I want to ask you more into the type of relationship people build with technology and how do you see companies exploring that relationship? Do they ask powerful questions? When were moments in your career when you felt like you worked for a company that did ask those powerful questions that led to a good research and subsequently a good design output? I'll just really quickly say that it was my last day of work on Friday for this company. Because as I mentioned to you guys before this, I'm moving back to California. So it was my last day. It doesn't necessarily make me feel any more or less free, to be honest about <laughs> it. I, they know me and they know I would be honest about it either way. So this business, interestingly, it's, a, it's what's called a tech incubator. So they build businesses in-house and the operations team within the company builds 12 businesses a year across six different sectors. So this is what I sort of alluded to in my, in my experience specifically about there being a lack of, of time for really sort of this in-depth research because we 
were, and they still are, working on extremely tight deadlines. I mean, just like really, really intense and also a lot of context switching and all this kind of stuff. I feel like, as you might expect, there were definitely some instances in which some of the businesses that they built were asking those really important, powerful questions and and a lot more kind of considered. And uh, I was able to sort of really be like, no, stop, we need to slow down, we need to we need to really make sure that this isn't being built on our assumptions about these people that you're building this product for. Um, and there were some times when things just kind of like flew by, and there wasn't a whole lot that I could do about it. Um, so I would say I experienced both sides of that within this within this one business on a pretty regular basis. Um, and you know, it can be it can be difficult. Uh, I think I think that these sort of social, scientific, and in general, and anthropological in particular perspectives are becoming more and more respected. But it's still it's still kind of getting there. And you know, I am relatively lucky in that I don't really mess around. I'm fairly straightforward. I think you know, not to be not to be uh, really reductive on a podcast about anthropology, but <laughs> as an working in a British work uh, British workplace, it's pretty. Yeah, there is definitely a sort of stereotype that we all fall into there where I'm kind of like the brash American and I can be like, no, stop. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely still difficult to make sure that those questions are being asked and, and considered, especially when you're working with a lot of specialists and people, you know, entrepreneurs who have exited multiple times, really impressive, um, like computer vision, data scientists, experts, people like this, you know, there's a lot of egos in a room and it can be difficult to actually get them to, to believe that they might not know what they're talking about. I think especially in that world of incubation where speed is, if that is accelerated becomes hyper accelerated. um, And that, that doesn't help for you to stop and look around. And there's a specific anxiety. I worked in the, in the startup incubator space for a bit, so I can totally get what you're saying. Like they are a special breed of hyper um, speed and hyper anxiety and focus. And, and that doesn't really work very well with slowing down and asking questions. Um, But I haven't done it continuously. Like I know like acceleration programs normally are six months that I've been involved in six months or maximum, I think a year. And after that, everybody is just spent like that kind of hyper rhythm, the alertness, and they can't really sustain it for a long time. But um, one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking was one of the um, topics that we ask um, as speakers around is to speak a bit to the topic of power and agency. Um, because there is, there are a few that worked in the business world that that mentioned similar to you um, this kind of reluctance of businesses to um, engage with their consumers or to give even perceive that they have the agency to influence their own products and they have power over them. Um, so I wanted I wanted you to maybe to ask you to speak a bit to this topic of power of agency, like from the businesses that you've engaged with. Did you observe the same kind of um, I think, or were there businesses that you worked with where they did have the perception that the people that were using the product had the power to influence the design of the product or how the product was used, therefore had the power to influence their decisions? Um, yeah, I, I think 
pretty much all, I'd say a majority of the companies that I've worked with, not all of them, but a majority of them have really abided by um, the sort of like agile development principles of iterating through testing with real customers, which, which is really, which is really great. You know, if you kind of construct the tests properly and make sure that you're not leading them and recruit the right people to take part, you can get some really valuable data from that. So yeah, I, I think the mentality that I've worked with majority of the time has been people who feel a real kind of connection with the users that they're building products for and, and very eager to kind of hear what they think and to take their feedback into consideration. Um, I think one of the biggest things is just getting one of the biggest issues for me working with sort of designers and product managers. And I think especially engineers is to get them to consider their users and their customers, not just in terms of a singular interaction between that person and the product that they're building in some sort of, you know, unrealistic vacuum, but to think about this person going about their entire life and then interacting with this in the context of, you know, thousands of other things you know, they say like, oh, well, when a, when a user sort of gets to this page, they should be feeling this. And I'm like, what if they had a really bad day? What if, I don't know, what if they fell off a bike? What if their partner broke up with them? What if they are getting evicted? What if, like, you don't know what's happening. How can you, how can you presume to know what this person's going to be feeling when they get to this page? That's ridiculous. Did it ever happen to you to observe a situation where context became real for them, for those engineers asking those, um, making those assumptions? Yeah. So, so there's one, one product that I, that I worked on about a year ago. Um, it's an, it's an AI. I can talk about it because I think it's going public like next week. Anyway, it's a, it's an AI search, uh, like sourcing engine for recruiters because recruiters spend 75% of their time just trolling through LinkedIn profiles, mm-hmm. trying, using a calibration candidate and trying to find appropriate relevant candidates that they can add to their sort of shortlist. So they're one of the teams we were working with was building this AI sourcing engine that was going to, you know, cut this time in half basically. And, you know, they were kind of, making a lot of assumptions around what information would need to be displayed and how the information would need to be displayed when, when someone was conducting a search and it was, it was sourcing the results. And I, I actually got to do an ethnographic study with a couple of recruiters, just following them around for a few days and watching their workflows and, you know, like listening to their phone conversations and how they sort of understood Mm -hmm. the data they were gathering from the candidates that they were interviewing and the clients that they were working with and stuff. And that definitely made a huge... So the biggest thing that that came from that that was really surprising was when they were talking to a candidate, they weren't really... They were thinking very contextually. They weren't thinking about that one candidate for that one role. They're constantly building this like really intense mental map of the entire tech ecosystem in London in this case, right? So this guy would be on like a 30 minute phone call with someone and with a candidate and the guy would be talking about his experience at like these three companies he had worked at and the people he had worked with there. And when the guy I was shadowing, like researching, um, hung up the phone, he, he would be like, wow, we just learned a lot of really interesting stuff about those three companies. It wasn't anything to do with this candidate. It was like, 
you know, how, how can I kind of add this to this really uh-huh. in-depth, really detailed map of what companies have gone through, what organizational changes mm-hmm. and launched which products or been scaling or growing or failing at what times and who's been involved where. And that's the value they were giving to their clients was being able to give them this really, really, really detailed contextual information. So then that was incorporated, like very, very much incorporated into how these candidates were being then presented to the recruiters when they were using that engine instead of just being this person, this is where they work right now, this is their title. It kind of, it it turned into this sort of timeline map so that the recruiters could see where they had been, how they had influenced and influenced by the organizations they had. Oh yeah, that's like... I feel like Karina, obviously you deal with a lot of this as well, right? When you deal with your work. Um, But also, I guess I'm more interested in like the relationships between built between people and the technology that um, these businesses are designing. And so I was wondering like what type of relationships have you seen people build with these technologies? Can I see people build with the technologies? Yeah, like... um, how do they relate to the technologies or perhaps maybe even something that the companies didn't expect people to, um, yeah, perhaps like, um, like we had one guest in here talking about how, um, Facebook was used in a way that, um, she didn't expect it to be used by, um, people in slums, how they adopted it to their own culture and stuff. Is there anything like that you've seen where people have, um, adopted the technologies in a way that perhaps the companies have not um, um, expected. Yeah. So there's one one example that comes to mind uh, that was the startup I worked for like two, two jobs ago or something. It was a wearable tech company. And uh, it was actually the company that built the sort of mindful uh, hardware. So one of the other functions, it, it essentially was made to filter notifications um, so that you weren't looking at your phone all the time, right? So you could set which notifications you wanted to know about, and when those ones came through, the jewelry would vibrate. And that was the primary function of this hardware that we were building. And this one woman who was a user came in to do testing with us, and we were talking to her about how she had been using her bracelet in this case. And she had used it in a couple of really interesting ways, uh, that I thought were really brilliant, actually. One of them was she was at a party and she wanted to leave at 11. She's like, I need to leave at 11. I need to go home. I need to sleep. I can't be out super late. But she didn't want to be checking the time on her phone. So she, you could set alarms on this as well. So she just set an alarm on the bracelet to go off at 11 so that it wouldn't be an alarm going off on her phone. She was checking her phone. It was just sort of a soft vibration on her wrist. So when it went off, she could just go, hey, got to go now and sort of sneak out the door. And then this same woman was in central London and she, it was, it was summer and it was a really busy day and she was trying to meet a friend of hers uh, and she didn't want to have her phone out because she was worried that someone might try and steal it because it's an area, you know, like in Soho where people are pick, like picking all the time and stuff. So she uh, basically set the notification filters just so it was this one friend she was meeting coming through so she could put her phone in her bag and not have to have it out in her hands so she could kind of protect herself from the environment around her through using this just for exactly what she needed and not kind of exposing herself to people, which I thought was really interesting uh, and, and quite an ingenious way to use these devices that we had never thought of before. 
Yeah, yeah. it's pretty genius. <laughs> um, so I guess another question I would ask is that I'm a student at the moment studying anthropology, and I've really just come into this sort of applied anthropology um, area through Karina. Um, so what I'd like to ask is perhaps, like, would there be any advice you would give students, like even art students actually, that want to go into a more applied area? Because I feel like it is quite a scary, it's a scary thought almost, leaving academia, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, yeah I'd like to know what your thoughts or advice are on that topic. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I mean, I, I loved being in academia. I'm thinking about uh, very seriously right now about going back to do my PhD, actually, because I miss it so much. Yes. Um, I my, my master's dissertation supervisor made a very scary comment to me when I was coming to the end of my master's degree, where we were talking about ethics in the private sector and I very idealistically was like, oh, well, maybe I can change things from the inside out. And he was basically said, no, you become what you do, uh, which I think is a fair thing to say to an idealistic student, but not necessarily true and way too scary and sort of doomsday-ish uh, yeah. and not <laughs> realistic. So my advice would be, my advice would be not to be not to sort of limit yourself in terms of what you think is necessarily possible or relevant for you to do. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of how I ended up doing what I'm doing, I it was a mistake, a thing I essentially not a mistake, but something I fell into without a lot of sort of thought. You never know what's going to happen. There are always a million jobs and careers and specialties out there that we have absolutely no idea about, have never heard of before. So, yeah, it's really, it, it is, it is really, it can't be really scary, but I think you also need to think more laterally about the skills that you learn through academia. You're not just learning how to do qualitative research, but you're learning how to think in a certain way and you're learning how to converse and express yourself in a certain way and how to argue and uh, challenge people in a particular way. And all of those skills are equally valuable and not, not totally pigeonholed to, you know, qualitative research for anthropology or, you know, a design job for someone who studied fine arts or something like that. You know, you kind of need to think a lot more laterally about it and, and allow those skills to be surprising in places that maybe they didn't think that they needed those mindsets, those perspectives. And, you know, I w um, on the follow-up on that, I want to ask you another question. But before that, um, I was thinking that actually anthropology in the private sector to a, in some aspects is more difficult than anthropology inside academia. Because yeah. you're, you're almost all of the time, I think, mediating between two different groups. You know, so you have to do analysis on your field side, on your consumers following your question. But at the same time, you have to explain that or engage with um, the field side of the company that you're working um, for. And you have to get these two groups somehow to get to a mutual understanding of each other. And that is very difficult. And on top of that, um, are all those implications of power dynamics between you as an anthropologist inside a company, differences of interest, positions. Of, so all of that, they come into play. And on top of that, you have the specific culture of the corporation with the metrics that they have um, and, and their own habits and values and how they work. Um, um, and everything comes together under a very short time. 
So I think uh, <laughs> all of that put together makes it for a very kind of, um, I think, challenging environment. For, but from my experience, to a certain extent, um, it's also, it, it, it helps you become a better anthropologist, I think. Um, because one of the challenges that I had inside academia was how isolated it was. And I, I, I did my studies in Europe as well, in, in Amsterdam. And I remember one day when I was listening to this American professor um, talking about communism in Eastern Europe. And I come from Eastern Europe and I was seven when the wall fell and I saw on TV how they were shooting each other. And, you know, I had a very vivid memory and very vivid experience through also my parents of that time. And this American anthropologist, just because he was a professor, he just dismissed my own experience so fast. And I was trying, you know, to tell him um, to kind of maybe contradict some of the things that he was talking about um, around his PhD in Romania. Um, and he just dismissed it immediately and just because of his position. So I, I think one of the challenges of being inside academia is also to a certain extent, it's very disconnected from the real world that you're investigating. And you have the politics of academia. And that's also another, another monster, another animal altogether. So um, I think, yeah, I think, I think it really, what I would say to any student considering applied anthropology is to just, like you said, you know, think vertically and just explore. I mean, there's no binary um, solution to anything. Um, you just have to see where your personality and your profile takes you and when you're happy. But my question had to do, similar to the technology's evil discourse, I think there's another discourse inside academia, which is capitalism is evil or corporations are evil. And I've, I've, come, I've come against this discourse, especially here in, in, in New Zealand, much more than in Europe. And it has been a struggle um, because it's a very reductive di discourse. It's a very damaging, I think, also discourse to somebody that wants to approach um, working outside of academia, but then gets shut down or um, when they come facing this discourse. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to this discourse from your experience, if, if you've experienced it too. And, and yeah, what are your thoughts around that? I mean, yeah. Um, well, so the university where I did my undergraduate degree, I don't know if you guys have heard of it. So us, it's a very... They, they have, like, Marxist summer camp on the camp. camp. <laughs> um, it's, it's a, it, yeah, it's a very sort of, like, anti-capitalist, very, very liberal university. Um, yeah, I've come across that discourse a lot in, in within my experience in academia. Uh, it's, I, I agree that it's completely reductive. I think also it's just a little bit naive because, I, yeah. Uh, capitalism is is not perfect um there are a lot of things that are wrong with it there are a lot of things that are wrong with corporations there are a lot of things that are wrong with academia as well but it's kind of unless unless you actually think that there's something that you can do to change it or unless you're actually really trying to do something to change it it's not particularly useful just to sort of talk about it constantly or to try to dissuade you know, idealistic young people from going and try, mm -hmm. trying to change it in some way, shape or form. And it's kind of just, can either of you guys really imagine capitalism being overthrown at this point in our society? Yeah, no, really? no not really. <laughs> Everyone hopes, like, but what would replace yeah. it? Like, 
Yeah. Yeah. So many questions. I, well, I, I think for me, this discourse is also a symptom of um, the degradation of the democratic system that exists now in our society. And, you know, what is yeah. the role of academia within this new system and deeper questions around neoliberalism that, that not, don't necessarily are not necessarily connected to capitalism per se, but how our society is reimagining living together and the role of institutions and the role of the commercial space. Um, and I, th and I think, I think that capitalism is evil discourse is just a symptom of, of that. You know, I mean, I've seen so many, um, the tenure jobs are getting smaller and smaller. The, um, there is this also discourse in the economic space that academia is useless. Like, you know, you should start your working time, you should your career much earlier and not invest in an education because most of the time that education will leave you with a lot of debt and not necessarily a guaranteed start um, in your work life. So, um, yeah, I think, I think there, there's so many kind of nuances to this kind of discourses and, and where exactly do they come from. But I mean, I, I've lived almost all of my life, my, my, my formative years in Europe, which still has quite a strong social system in comparison to other societies. And I've become like moving into other cultures, you know, in South America, um, you know, US, um, now here in New Zealand, and you can see the neoliberalism of our, of our governance getting stronger and stronger and, and the implications that, that, that this has, you know, on, on the role of institutions in our society. Um, and also, you know, how people access education and for what. Yeah, that, absolutely. That is really changing. So, um, yeah, sorry, Angel, you wanted to say something? Oh, no, I was just thinking along that lines that I feel like, especially in anthropology, we get into this trap where we, like, overthink everything we do. Like, it's all going to have, like, a consequence. Like, we're always thinking about, like, what our actions are going to impact, who, how, like, the larger picture. But we think so much about these issues that we sometimes, like, hold ourselves back from, like, pursuing, like, new areas, like business and what we're doing here. And I just, like... Yeah, it kind of annoys me a bit, to be honest, which might might not be my place to say, to be honest, and maybe someone will listen to us and uh, give me some hassle about it later. But yeah, I wish I'd see more people like you and Karina and that just like kind of, you know, exploring these new fields and trying new things because I feel like, you know, we should try new things. And I feel like, you know, things change and develop. Oh, yeah. Karina. I've also seen the opposite happen, and I wonder if you've seen that in your career as well. Um, I've worked with a lot of designers, um, especially practitioners of human-centered design, and I've seen also the, the Epic community, where a lot of people coming from the design space, they, they, once they understand how anthropology works, they, they show a lot of respect for, for the rigor and the discipline of of the observation of culture in use, because it's not something very easy. You are looking at things that through the habit of usage, they, they just become invisible and they are invisible even to ourselves. So a good social scientist is able to make the invisible visible. And that's not something that anybody can do that easily, you know? So um, in working with designers, I've, I've kind of, I've watched their, their mindset towards social science kind of change when they see it happening in real life and they see how, kind of how beneficial it is to have a social scientist next to you when you're interviewing somebody because they see things that you m maybe don't see because of their training. Have, have you seen that as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think I've been very lucky, actually, in terms of the people that I've worked with. And it's not something 
I, it's not something that I that I've heard a lot from from other people in my field or coming from you know from our academic background. I really get the feeling that I've I've lucked out and I'm probably going to in for a rude awakening at some point when I start start a new job somewhere. But um, yeah, especially the last business before uh, I was the first one to come in in any kind of qualitative research role, and uh, I would talk a lot about you know contextualizing contextualizing the user's behavior through anthropological methodologies and all this kind of stuff. And people would really listen. And there was definitely a lot of respect for where I was coming from and respect for the fact that I was having to establish this role in a business that hadn't had someone fulfilling that before. Um, there was, you know, there were obviously also times when I, that was not the case, but I'd say for the most part, I was very, very, very lucky in, in terms of people taking on my recommendations and, and really understanding the value of that within what they were going to do. Uh, I mean, all I can really hope for at this point, because a lot of what I was doing was sort of trying to train designers and product managers to, to take on that mindset. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if that sticks, but I hope it does. <laughs> How, um, I was wondering if you could give our listeners some tips on, especially those that are, you know, young anthropologists working into uh, going into a business project. Um, businesses normally have their own specific metrics by which they judge, you know, if an information has been u- useful or not. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a kind of an art of, you know, turning something that you see into something that is actionable um, and that impacts whatever it is the project's objective are at that time. Would you have, and I think this, is, this particular transformation is not something that anthropologists are trained for. Um, it's, so um, once they come into a business project with all their ability to kind of uncover the contextual realities of the users, um, when they are asked, okay, so what do I do with that? How does it convert into something that, that brings me something? Um, how would you advise an anthropologist to approach that? Yeah, that is an excellent point. Uh, I totally agree that that is something we are not very prepared for. We can pontificate well into the night about all of these amazing things we've discovered and then have absolutely no idea what the hell to actually do with that information. Um, I think, I think that you have to, I think you have to kind of let go a little bit of your academic training in a certain way, you know, um, because there's a difference between um, uncovering and observing behavior and trying to affect and change behavior. And I think that that is sometimes an uncomfortable transition for a researcher to make. Um, I, I think a lot of it is, is really embedding yourself with the designers that you work with and understanding what the, their guiding principles are, what good design looks like, understanding how the product managers work. So this is obviously very specifically within a digital technology space, but you could abstract this to, to other working environments as well as really, you know, kind of you, you are there to try and instill a sense of your background and expertise into the rest of the business, but you should be permeable the other way as well. Right. You know, you need to come to understand what the guiding principles and metrics and goals of that business are. And I mean, that is sort of an anthropological experiment in and of itself, right? But I I think it's just about really being open to learning and taking on other people's points of view and expertise and just learn and just learning as you go. I mean, that's, 
I, I think not just in terms of anthropology, applied anthropology, but I think the dirty little secret of at least sort of professional professionalism in Western society is nobody knows what they're doing. You know, like everybody feels like an imposter. Nobody actually really knows what they're doing. Everyone's figuring it out as they go along. So I would say, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to take on other sort of principles and best practice from the adjacent fields to you. And, um, and don't, and don't be afraid to kind of push your own sort of process and best practice Mm -hmm. on other people as well and kind of compromise and meet in the middle. I, there's no sort of silver bullet for that. It is a really, it is a struggle. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a difficult thing to pick up. And I think, I think it just, yeah, I think it's about just finding ways to, to work with the people around you and adjust. Um, I was just wondering, like, what do you love most about working this way because I know for me that I love like um, working with other people and like in academia usually I find I'm sitting at a desk by myself or something unless you're doing field work you know what I mean so I really love that about this like what what's uh, what's it for you what do I love the most about it um, I think it's just a there's something really interesting that happens when you kind of open up a conversation to to other people uh, I, I love sitting and discussing anthropology with other anthropologists. It's refreshing. It's something I don't get to do very often. But actually, what can be even more revealing is sitting and discussing a field with someone who doesn't actually know anything about it, because they might ask a really interesting question or give you an interesting perspective on something that you say that's not something you ever would have thought of before. Uh, and having that kind of cross-pollination and that kind of diversity of thought in a conversation can be really, really, really productive in a different way. Right. Um, so, and yeah, I think that that's, that's fundamentally it for me is, is it's changing, changing the kind of angle from which you are able to see certain things. Yeah. yeah. And I think being the kind of person that values that diversity of thought and it's open to, you know, her own views of anthropology to become maybe, you know, pollinated, um, I think it's important once you, when you are considering entering this field, because it's so important that you allow the field to also influence you. Otherwise, you know, business anthropology, you, I don't think anybody would be happy in that space um, if they hold on too tightly to their own ideas of what, what anthropology is and how it should be used. So I think that's, that's a really excellent point. Um, I had another question around, specifically around technology and uh, being an anthropologist in the space of technology. One of the other questions that we're asking our um, speakers has to do with inequality and access. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as an anthropologist, especially working in technology, I know that throughout history, anthropology has been, you know, the defender uh, of, the, of the people that are from a, an inferior position of power to, to um, more dominant groups. And, and inherently, applying anthropology in business doesn't always allow for the conversation around inequality to take place. Um, and we've had an excellent conversation with uh, with an anthropologist from India that she was talking how um, through through talking about access you can bring the inequality topic inside the corporation because specifically when it comes to um, technologies that that make profit or money by having a very wide access 
that means that they have to deal with inequality in a positive way. Like they need to find, they, they basically almost have to uh, eradicate it because otherwise their access would become small. And by making this association, she, she manages to get the businesses to look at inequality as a positive force and not necessarily discriminating um, one group versus another and, you know, just developing things for the top 5% of that specific culture. So I was wondering if you've, how, how you've dealt with inequality in your work and if you have a similar story of, you know, positive positive or negative um, around this topic? So most of the, uh, professionally, most of the products that I've worked on have very much been geared to like to the UK. They've been very sort of West Western centric uh, products and businesses. I personally don't have any personal experience with this, but I have done a lot of reading recently into uh, something that's super interesting called the next billion users initiative have you guys heard about it no um it's a it's a part of google so google essentially it, it actually it's it's very aligned with what you just said of inequality as as a sort of positive force you know in terms of uh, getting businesses to actually think about the entire world having access to technology so google had tried to develop products within and for india I think like 10 years ago and it just, they did it completely the wrong way. They were basically trying to develop products for India from Silicon Valley, essentially. So obviously everything failed miserably. <coughs> they didn't actually have any people on the ground. Um, they weren't working. They were working with some Indian engineers and stuff, but it just, they, they went about it the wrong way. Right. And they kind of realized that actually there were less than um, a billion people with with access to the internet in India anyway. And in terms of the bottom line, it wasn't really worth it for them to put that kind of development time into that market. So they kind of just like forgot about India for a while. Mm -hmm. And then this year, or sorry, I forgot that it's January. Last year, in 2017, um, the penetration of smartphones in India passed 1 billion. So now, all of a sudden, India is this really interesting market to Google, and they've started this initiative called the Next Billion Users Initiative, and they've like started hiring loads of native, uh, like Indian anthropologists and social scientists, and they're they're um, doing projects in Hyderabad and other developing markets like Mexico and Nigeria. Um, what was the other place that I saw? Yeah, it was like, yeah, those are the ones that I can remember. Nigeria, India, Mexico. So there's actually these really, now now that smartphone penetration has kind of reached this critical mass, um, access is going to become, the, in my opinion, the next big race for all of these big tech companies because in terms of their business interests, it makes sense for them now because there aren't enough people to for them to be able to essentially make a, pro a profit off of, which is slightly nefarious, mm -hmm. but it's capitalism. But it's also great because it means that actually um, people from, from underserved markets are actually going to start getting attention from these big tech companies that we've sort of taken for granted for so long. Yeah. And I think this can also apply to a certain extent to more developed countries, especially when you talk about people from a lower socioeconomic condition, right? 
and how do they access products and um, what exactly types of services are geared towards them and also how present they are in the boardroom, to be honest. I think um, most of the time when I go into into a business meeting and I see the classic marketing segmentation, <coughs> now that, that it's, it's basically a cardboard projection of um, some attributes that they associate with either a white female or a, a white male, that is from middle and upper class, you know. Uh, she likes to, he likes to go golfing in the weekend and she likes to go shopping and, you know, it's, it's all of these descriptors that basically tell you that this is our society and there is a, a very clear void in the room when you talk about people that come from a lower socioeconomic condition. And um, when I remember doing my first ethnographic project into a space where I... I didn't necessarily look for it, but when I set up my field for field work, um, a significant part of the people that I interviewed were coming from a very low socioeconomic condition. So I had to bring their reality into that meeting and discuss the implications of that reality to these people that were not really used to talk about it like that. And they're like, but we don't have a seg segmentation card with them. Who, where do they belong? <laughs> so... Um, And and I and I think you know I think talking about it also makes you a bit uncomfortable because you do come from a position of privilege and being exposed to what your product does to that person's life um, it's not something easy if if it hasn't been done in the in the meeting room or in the boardroom so far so I wondered if if within your experience so far in London have you come across um, a situation like that discussions around people from a lower socioeconomic level and. And their experience with the product? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to think back. I know that stuff I, I know that, that that has come up before. I'm trying to think back to specific instances. I have to I have to admit, in my experience, there is such a hmm. um, sorry, your Skype's kinda cut out for a second. Um, oh, I think okay, it's back on now. Can we get you to repeat that again? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in my experience, there is like very, very, very little discussion mm -hmm. over or representation of people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, I I think there's a tendency, from what I've experienced in the London tech community, and I would assume is probably I, I would assume with the, with pretty decent confidence of the Silicon Valley tech community that that just isn't something that particularly naturally comes to mind for the people who are sort of in charge of guiding the conversation. Um, I have been in conversations with people who have who will remain nameless where myself and other colleagues will be saying that we really want to work on some projects that will have a positive social impact and be specifically geared towards uh, more underprivileged segments of the population. And uh, the person who is sort of in charge of, of the purse strings will really, really stretch to argue that previous projects we've worked on were social impact projects that really just aren't. Um, it's like a, it's like a long, real long walk for a short drink of water sort of justification. Um, I, it's, it's a conversation I've tried to have a lot. It's not a conversation I've successfully had. I yeah. probably, yeah. 
and I think and I think it's 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 also important to have that conversation from a position of equal power of these users. I think in my conversations with businesses, their imagination of lower socioeconomic um, um, groups are of people completely destitute, almost that are powerless, that are you know basically waiting to die somewhere in a ditch. So. Um, that 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 also you know showing them that those people have lives have power have monetary power that they use to influence the choices that they make um and they are a valid group of people to work with um it's very important and and not not just um not not and that will kind of shift it's shifting the way they 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 look at them and and relate to them as well um i wanted to ask another question of inequality not monetary now but but gender I think an, another another topic that um, I found working in the tech space is how male-driven it is, especially from the engineer side, from my experience. And I sat in conversations where um, a group of male engineers were discussing how the AI um, bots would look like and, and came up to the conclusion that it should look like a, a female stewardess because that gives us confidence that the information is um, reliable. And then when I asked them, how many women do you have in your user base for this product? And they said more than 70%. And I said, but do you think for a woman, this is also the same thing? <laughs> and there was this big, long silence um, in the room. So um, I was wondering if you have you know, any experience with, with that type of situation um, in the tech sector. <laughs> So much experience. <laughs> um, yeah, I, <clears throat> it's all. It's just. It's. It's more. It's more normal than anything else, really. Uh, yeah, I, I. I honestly don't even know where to start with that one. Holy shit. Um, yeah, so uh, the last company I worked for was, I think by the time I left, had gotten up to like 35% women, which was a huge accomplishment because I think the industry average in London is 26%. Uh, it's such a problem. Uh, it's something I've brought up. I, I have no I, I have no qualms with bringing up just to anyone who will listen to me because I think it is a problem. I have gotten in so many fights with engineers who say, well, you know, we can't hire more female engineers because they're just not out there. And I'm like, well, then maybe we should try encouraging girls to take STEM uh, when they're younger and not telling them that they should be, you know, I don't know, just reading Jane Austen and, and trying to make them a light young woman to make them happy. Today. It just... It makes me so angry. Um, yeah, I've had so, so, so many. Um, so, I, and actually, I think there's I, with with engineers in particular. You can tell I'm getting like really worked up about this now. Uh, with engineers in particular, there's sort of a double whammy when you're a social scientist and a woman because there's like two reasons for them not to take you seriously. Uh, that is a broad general thing, sweeping statement. Obviously not all engineers are like that. And some engineers really do deeply value a anthropological, for example, perspective in, in how that affects their work and their ability to do, to do their work. And I've worked with some wonderful engineers who are super open to that. But I've also been in some super uncomfortable situations where I feel like I'm definitely being treated like an idiot because I'm an anthropologist 
and a woman, uh, I had a massive, massive go with the two founders of one of the AI startups I was working with once, um, who one was a data scientist and the other was their senior engineer. Uh, and the product was for research scientists. And I was essentially told that I wouldn't possibly understand their because they're research scientists and how could I possibly understand? Uh, I went on such a long rant that I was essentially red in the face by the end of it, just from lack of oxygen going to my brain and a design mine was sitting next to me. And when I, when I switched to Okay. (laughs) What do you think prevents them from kind of being open to um, other perspectives? Fear. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a big societal change we're seeing when I say societal, I'm speaking particularly in terms of the UK and the U S right now, in terms of a particular sort of group of people who have traditionally been in a position of power, maybe starting to, that position of power a little bit. Um, those of us who aren't necessarily uh, middle-aged heterosexual white dudes are maybe getting a little bit ballsier and challenging them on things and showing that we actually can provide a lot of value and that we aren't going to be pigeonholed or restricted by them anymore. And I think, I, I definitely think that that has something to do with it. Um, I mean, yeah, ironically in the conversation I was just referring to, uh, the point I was trying to make to them was that research scientists didn't want to use their AI because it made them feel like they were becoming irrelevant because it was automating a big piece of their work. And they refused to believe that. And I was like, mm, this is ironic. <laughs> okay, whatever you say. Um, what would you advise, um, for example, anthropologists here coming into this situation in the business world? Like, how can they... How can they navigate these conversations in a way that 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 helps their, that relationship of trust um, be be built in a way that kind of maybe makes the fear smaller? Um, honestly, all you can really do is prove them wrong. So, as 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 great as it is to sit and have a conversation and a discussion and maybe even sometimes an argument with someone and try to prove your point. And try to prove your value in that way. If if you can actually just really throw yourself into a really good piece of work mm-hmm. and come out with a super useful outcome that proves whatever point you are trying to make and provides a lot of value to not only that individual but the business goals in general, mm-hmm. there that's that's something that can't be argued with. Yeah. Most of companies are really data driven and if you can even if it's qualitative data if you can provide them with data and with value through data they're not going to be able to argue with you anymore awesome thank you okay i really sad to wrap this up but we've like gone into an hour now so (laughs) i think we should probably stop it um and i think we'd love to have you back maybe to talk about women in the workforce or another series another time because i feel like you would be amazing to talk to about that if you'd be interested maybe another time um Yeah, yeah i would also just like to say that um your work is online for all our listeners out there. I think it's actually pretty very accessible compared to other guests that we've had there because, um, yeah, it's on the website, right? 
Well, yeah. we're going to yeah. put all the links below um, on the on your profile for the podcast so that the people that want to read more into your work, especially that fascinating wearable tech uh, piece that you mentioned earlier, they can just do that. Yeah, so I'd highly suggest for our listeners to go check that out. Um, apart from that, like, thank you so much for being on our show. And It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. No worries. So, That's yeah, it. bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.